Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of self-harm, sexual violence, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. By 2011, Elaine O'Hara was at the end of her rope. A prior sexual relationship had been extremely abusive, marred by her partner's obsession with sharp objects. It took all her strength just to move on, to prove to herself that she could be in a healthy relationship that also satisfied her needs. The problem was that Elaine's needs weren't all healthy. Deep self-loathing led her to crave extremely negative treatment over the line of conventional BDSM. It was something other men just weren't willing or able to give her. She hooked up with a few guys, but still felt unsatisfied. She wondered if she would ever find a reprieve from her dreary day-to-day life. In the midst of these thoughts, Elaine's phone suddenly buzzed. It was him, the man who tormented her for years, Graham Dwyer. He wanted to talk. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll discuss Elaine O'Hara and how she came to know Graham Dwyer. Elaine's lack of self-confidence led her to a toxic relationship that went far, far beyond the bounds of even the most extreme BDSM activity. Next week, we'll follow their relationship to its terrible conclusion. The two kept going until the bitter end, long after the point of no return. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. 
Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. At first glance, there wasn't anything unusual about Elaine O'Hara's childhood. Born on St. Patrick's Day in 1976, she grew up in Kalini, Ireland, a seaside town not far from Dublin. Her first 15 years were comfortable, middle-class, and pleasantly uneventful. But no one could have known the internal struggles the quiet, mousy girl battled every day. From an early age, she had trouble managing her emotions, swinging from long, depressive episodes to whirling, uncontrollable rage. For a long time, these mood swings didn't result in any notably strange behavior. So her parents, Frank and Eileen, probably believed it was within the bounds of normal teenage emotion. But the truth was that they'd only seen a fraction of Elaine's true anger. Most of their daughter's emotional turmoil was going on under the surface. Since the age of 12, Elaine had been directing rage inward. She felt a deep loathing for herself and saw her life as an endless string of failures in everything from her interactions with others to her personal appearance. To grapple with these feelings, she constructed an elaborate fantasy, a scenario she later described as a play in her head that she turned to in times of great stress. We don't know much about this fantasy, only that it involved her being punished for her self-perceived flaws. Before I dive into Elaine's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. This so-called play in Elaine's mind sounds similar to maladaptive daydreaming, a compulsive fantasy one is unable to ignore. According to a 2002 study by clinical psychologist Ellie Sommer, PhD, Maladaptive daydreams can provide the illusion of success, sexual satisfaction, and so on, when such things don't exist in reality. Patients can grow to rely on these scenarios as unhealthy ways to cope with their real lives. But not all of these daydreams are good. In Elaine's case, her fantasy seemed like a personification of her self-loathing, it served as a place where she could imagine herself being hurt for any and all of her self-appointed failures. And that made it all the more dangerous. By internalizing her self-loathing, Elaine kept her feelings a secret from others. But that didn't mean that they didn't affect her. If anything, the negative feelings only worsened the other issues she faced as a teenager. Around the same time that Elaine first had these intrusive thoughts, she also developed physical ailments that couldn't be ignored. It became apparent that she was living with asthma and diabetes, as well as dyslexia. Doctors were able to help treat her symptoms, but Elaine grew more frustrated by her body, almost as if her health issues were her fault. Her reading disability took a toll on her schoolwork, and her grades started to slip yet another blow to her already fragile self-esteem. She was also bullied by her peers, which didn't help her develop healthy social skills. As far as we know, Elaine only had one close friend as a teenager, and the relationship was short-lived. When Elaine was 15, her friend tragically died in a car accident. After that, Elaine withdrew even more. From behind her glasses and brown hair, the teenager continued to blame herself for things that were completely out of her control. 
By that time, the play in her head had become impossible to ignore. She couldn't stop fantasizing about being punished, either by someone else or her own hand. In 1992, 16-year-old Elaine started to regularly self-harm. She also took up a heavy smoking habit, a pretty risky behavior given her asthma. It appears that she managed to keep all of this from her parents who probably would have intervened otherwise. And later that year, her mental health issues reached a tipping point. One day, Elaine's younger sister, Anne, found her sister in the upstairs bathroom. Elaine had attempted to die by suicide. Elaine survived and the event served as a wake-up call to her parents, who had no clue that their daughter's mental health was in such crisis. Afraid of losing her forever, they searched high and low for help. That August, they checked Elaine into St. Edmundsbury Hospital, one of the most prestigious mental health-dedicated facilities in the Dublin area. Elaine's psychiatrist, Professor Anthony Clare, was stumped by the teenager, it can be difficult to diagnose mental health issues at that age when so much is in flux. By all accounts, she tried to cooperate with her care team, working with them to identify her best course of treatment. But when her punishment fantasy came up, she flat out refused to give details. Unsure what diagnosis to give Elaine, Professor Claire put together an exhaustive medication plan designed to head off any developing issues, these included multiple antidepressants and even tranquilizers. Unfortunately for Elaine, these pills did a better job of numbing her mind than actually managing her emotions. She wandered through school in a fog, unable to form any real connections with her fellow students. Professor Claire continued to tweak Elaine's medication, but it didn't make much of a difference. She returned to St. Edmundsbury a number of times over the next few years, and each hospital stay further removed her from the outside world. At a certain point, she probably knew her nurses better than her own classmates. She did have plans to seek out a teaching degree after high school, but with so many trips to and from the hospital, her grades suffered. By the time she graduated, she felt higher education just wasn't in the cards for her. Despite everything, Elaine still found a way to move toward the life she wanted, Shortly after finishing up high school, she found a childcare program at a nearby vocational college. She became qualified to work at a daycare, one step closer to her dream. Elaine was supported by many people. Her family and her doctors cheered her on at every step, hoping to drown out her negative thoughts with encouragement. But it only took one bad influence to undo it all. Coming up, Elaine looks for love in all the wrong places. Hi, podcasters. It's Greg and Vanessa from the series Serial Killers. For the past five years, we've explored hundreds of history's most notorious murderers, giving listeners an intimate look at their sordid origins and heinous crimes. If you haven't had a chance to join us before, there's no better time to dive in than right now for our Serial Killers 5th Anniversary Special. It's a four-part examination into the mythology surrounding four fearsome killers. Edmund Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Our 5th Anniversary Series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made their stories larger than life. 
If you've listened to the show before, we hope you enjoy. And if you haven't, this is the perfect series for any avid ParCast fan. Follow Serial Killers to hear our four-part fifth anniversary special. Listen now, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By the year 2000, 23-year-old Elaine O'Hara had already experienced more than her fair share of mental and physical health concerns. But finally, she'd secured a job at a daycare, the first step on her path to becoming a teacher. But just when things seemed to be going well, her old problems re-emerged. That February, Elaine O'Hara checked back into St. Edmundsbury Hospital in Dublin. We don't know what led her to this three-month-long visit, but according to medical records, her mental health had taken a serious turn for the worse. Her doctor, Professor Anthony Clare, pinpointed mood swings as one of Elaine's most distinct symptoms. She alternated from periods of relative stability to deep depression, peppered with bouts of rage. Because of this, Clare determined that she lived with emotional instability and recurrent depressive disorder. This diagnosis probably provided Elaine with some clarity. She stabilized over the next couple of years, living with her parents and enjoying the company of the children at her job. That all came crashing down in March of 2002, when Elaine's mother Eileen passed away at age 52. The loss affected her tremendously. Elaine had few, if any, friends, so her family were the only people close to her. It was a massive setback to her mental wellness. Her feelings of worthlessness, self-harming habits, and mood swings went into overdrive. With her real life uprooted, Elaine again turned to her intrusive fantasy of restraint and punishment. It had been an unhealthy comfort for years, and now it provided her a way to internalize her grief. She behaved as if her mother's death was somehow her fault and that she had to be punished for it. Perhaps that was somehow easier than accepting the loss as a blameless tragedy. Regardless, her so-called coping mechanism proved to be anything but. It kept Elaine from processing her grief in a healthy, meaningful way. Even a year after her mother's death, the wound was still fresh. In May of 2003, Elaine's suicidal ideation so frightened her that she checked back into St. Edmundsbury. There, Dr. Claire again pressed her for more information on her restraint fantasy. Elaine had never spoken about it before in detail, but this time she appeared more willing to open up. She gave Professor Claire as many details as she could stand to share, the desire to hurt herself or be hurt by others as a form of punishment. Elaine seemed terrified of this part of her own imagination, yet she was powerless to stop replaying it over and over again in her mind. Admitting to it seemed to be helpful to Elaine, 
After the stay at St. Edmundsbury, her condition started to improve again. She gathered the energy to sign up for night classes, still hoping to pursue a teaching career. And to gain some independence, she got a part-time job at a newsstand to help pay for it. She was excited to take on new responsibilities at work and quickly became a trusted employee. But on a personal level, she struggled to get along with her coworkers, turning many idle conversations into arguments. Even so, it was still a step in the right direction. Going even further, she decided to move out of her childhood home in early 2005 for an inexpensive apartment nearby. But the 28-year-old had never paid rent before and was unprepared for the added expense. With only a part-time job to support herself, she could barely juggle rent plus her classes, and spending so much time alone proved to be terrible for her well-being. Elaine stressed about her financial struggles, which combined with her isolation, made her symptoms worse than before. Her smoking habit increased to about 40 cigarettes per day, and her suicidal thoughts became impossible to drown out. At her 29th birthday party that St. Patrick's Day, Elaine had a violent mood swing, lashing out at her family in a burst of rage. Overcome with fury, she stormed out of the party and went home. It fell on her younger sister Anne to follow up with Elaine later that day. When she knocked on the door and didn't hear a response, she immediately feared the worst. She burst into the small apartment to find Elaine unconscious. Just as she'd feared, her older sister had made another attempt to die by suicide. Afterward, she stayed at St. Edmundsbury for two months. Just over a year later, in April 2006, she was admitted again, resulting in a much longer stay. Over the course of these two visits, Elaine made some troubling statements that were recorded in medical records. In one, she spoke directly about her anger, saying, I am not well. I have had this all my life. It is just coming to the surface now. Although depression is usually characterized as a state of low energy or melancholy, psychologists have long studied the link between depression and anger. In a 2013 study, over 500 patients seeking treatment for a depressive episode were analyzed. Over half were found to exhibit unusual levels of anger and irritability. And Elaine was angry at no one more than herself. Since childhood, she directed her rage inward, utterly annihilating her sense of self-worth. Now, as an adult, she was convinced she was a bad person and that no one liked her. Professor Claire never gave up on Elaine. In a way, he was like an old detective, and she was the one case he could never solve. He passed away in October 2007, leaving Elaine's fate in the hands of her new psychiatrist, Dr. Matt Murphy. Unlike Claire, Dr. Murphy preferred cognitive behavioral therapy to medicine whenever possible. He hoped the new approach might finally result in some lasting improvement. But Elaine had her own ideas. She had been poked and prodded by doctors all her life, yet there was only one thing that had ever truly eased her mind, her fantasy about being punished and restrained. After all this time, it was no longer enough to just imagine the scenario. And she decided that might be a good thing, 
Perhaps it would help to explore the fantasy in a safe, consensual environment. In the months following Professor Claire's death, Elaine turned to the internet to find a way to make her fixations a reality. Soon, she'd found an entire community of people interested in similar scenarios to the ones she'd been fixated on for years, the world of BDSM. BDSM usually stands for bondage and discipline, domination and submission, and sadism and masochism, but the term can refer to any kind of sex where the power dynamics are in play. In an effort to explore fantasies in the healthiest way possible, the BDSM community is built on constant communication and consent. Elaine created multiple profiles on fetish sites, declaring her search for an experienced, dominant partner who could show her the ropes and dictate her every move. In other words, Elaine wanted a master. Such relationships are far from uncommon in BDSM, but Elaine wanted something a little more extreme, more psychological. Her ideal master would inflict the punishments she believed she deserved, turning the play in her head into a real physical experience. Whether consciously or unconsciously, it seems like Elaine wanted this person to justify her feelings of inadequacy. That may have been why it took her a long time to find someone willing to indulge her fantasy. Eventually, she landed on the profile of one Graham Dwyer, a successful architect in his mid-30s. She was immediately hooked. Much like Elaine, Graham had a perfectly ordinary middle-class Irish childhood, but that was where the similarities ended. Born in September 1972, he'd grown up scouting and working on a chicken farm. He was an outgoing, active boy with lots of friends. In short, he was everything Elaine wasn't. He'd also managed to pursue a higher education, moving to Dublin for college in the early 1990s. That's where he met Amor McShay, with whom he had a son in 1992. Things were good for the young unmarried couple at first, but it appears the struggles of parenthood took a toll on Graham, because a few months later, he developed a new habit that seriously disturbed his partner. He revealed that his greatest fantasy was to stab someone during sex. Fetishes that exist outside the norm aren't considered a red flag by most psychological experts. However, researchers draw the line when a person is drawn to commit actual physical harm to their partner. According to psychological researcher Dr. Mark Griffiths, Graham Dwyer's unique sexual taste could be an example of peakerism, or the sexually charged desire to pierce another's flesh. Peakerism is widely considered a sexual disorder rather than a fetish, but it's a fairly under-researched phenomenon. Amer wouldn't have known to look for signs of peakerism in her partner. Instead, she humored Graham, allowing him to bring a kitchen knife into the bedroom. At first, he was satisfied to leave the knife on the floor. Just having it in the room was enough. But then he asked if he could hold it during the act, he claimed it was the only way he could achieve sexual satisfaction, another symptom of peakerism. Graham never actually stabbed Amer, but she quickly became uncomfortable with his obsession. She started to feel unsafe around him, afraid he might lose control and push things too far. But 
no matter what she said, Graham refused to let up. In his own words, things eventually became quite adversarial between them. That was an understatement. Amor finally got sick of living in fear, and in 1996, she took their son and fled. They kept in contact, and Graham remained a distant but steady part of his son's life. Amor, meanwhile, was never comfortable with him again. For his part, Graham quickly moved on, dating a fellow student named Gemma Healy the next year. In 2002, they married, and by 2006, they were both made directors of their architecture firms. The young couple had it all. Graham was thriving financially, able to fund an expensive model plane hobby while trading luxury cars. But there was one interest that he kept secret. Perhaps Graham had learned his lesson from his first relationship, so he didn't tell his wife about his knife obsession. But that didn't mean it just went away. When the urge to draw blood became unbearable, he turned to the internet. Graham knew it would be a challenge to find someone willing to participate in his fantasy. He reasoned it would be easier to find someone new to BDSM who didn't fully understand the ethical considerations involved. He needed a woman who could be easily manipulated into letting him act out his desires and who would keep their relationship a secret. He was overjoyed when he stumbled across Elaine's profile. Her username was almost too good to be true. It read, help me learn. She was perfect. Coming up, Elaine seeks to turn her fantasy into reality with devastating results. Now, back to the story. By 2008, Elaine O'Hara had gotten to know Graham Dwyer on an online BDSM site. Graham was older, wealthier, and it would seem healthier. At the time, Elaine was struggling to cope with her physical and mental health concerns and become a teacher. This contrasted with Graham's luxurious lifestyle, nice cars, and expensive hobbies. After some brief online correspondence, Elaine agreed to meet up with him in real life. She was open to a relationship, but she wanted to see if she could trust him with her fantasies first. Graham proved to be extremely charismatic. It was just another way he was unlike Elaine, who had few, if any, friends. He didn't have to try very hard to become the central figure in her life, and from there, it was only a short step to bringing her deepest desires to light. Even after they established a master-slave relationship, Graham made sure to respect Elaine's boundaries in accordance with established rules of BDSM. But this probably had less to do with seeking a safe environment and more to do with wrapping Elaine around his finger. Sure enough, she gradually let him in on her secrets. She told him about her restraint fantasy and the play that had been running on a loop in her head for decades. Graham happily filled the role of her tormentor, tying her up and punishing her for any wrongdoing he could imagine. We actually don't know if Elaine's fantasy involved sex, but regardless, it soon became a regular feature of their sessions. Once Graham was certain his control over Elaine was secure, he introduced 
is knife play. There is a line between BDSM play and real harm, and Graham Dwyer was more than happy to cross it. Elaine absolutely hated his knives and always asked him to go easy on her. But no matter what he told her beforehand, the weapons always came out sooner or later. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, BDSM has rules established beforehand that both parties follow to make sure that all activity is consensual. This often involves a safe word or some other way for the submissive partner to put a stop to any activity that crosses a boundary. Members of the BDSM community have long used the phrase safe, sane, and consensual as a guiding post in the bedroom. The idea is that if the activity isn't meeting all three of these criteria, it isn't healthy. Elaine and Graham's sexual activities were a far cry from safe, sane, or consensual. Graham simply didn't care that he was hurting Elaine beyond what she found acceptable. If anything, he enjoyed it. Elaine knew this, and yet she found it impossible to stay away. After all, she had no friends, had difficulty getting along with her family, and she didn't even particularly like herself. Graham was the only stable presence in her life. She may have even believed on some level that she deserved this nightmarish treatment. And Graham did nothing to discourage this perception, heaping insults on her. He gradually wore her down until she hit rock bottom. In one desperate moment, Elaine asked Graham to flat out kill her. Fortunately, the pair didn't go through with it. And at some point in 2009, Elaine finally built up the courage to stop seeing Graham altogether. But she didn't let the experience ruin her relationship with the BDSM community at large. With her abusive relationship in the rear view, she pursued healthier encounters, engaging in fully consensual activity with partners who were actually interested in her. While these relationships were fleeting, they were still a massive step forward for Elaine. Even better, most of her lifelong symptoms started to subside. While she still found it difficult to form friendships with her coworkers, her depressive episodes were fewer and less severe. Her suicidal ideation faded and her energy level rose. It seemed that exploring her fantasies in a calm, healthy way was leading her somewhere good. Sadly, Elaine's anger issues rose as her depression slipped into the background. The rage had always been there, but at a certain point, nearly everything infuriated her, including her father, one of the few people she had known all her life. It was around this time that he tried to have an honest conversation with her about her financial struggles. Perhaps if he could alleviate that stress, he thought, it might help quell her symptoms. But Elaine tightened up immediately, refusing to engage. When her father tried to bring up money, she only grew furious. She felt betrayed. The fact that he would bring up money on top of her other obstacles made her seethe. Her frustration boiled over and ended the conversation by blurting out the most uncomfortable thing she could think of. She practically screamed the intimate details of her relationship with Graham, even sharing that she'd asked him to kill her. 
The outburst was a massive shock to Frank. After he left the room, he assured himself by convincing himself that she was lying. She often said bizarre, uncomfortable things to end arguments. This story was so far-fetched, so shocking. Surely, it couldn't be true. But the confrontation ignited something in Elaine, recalling her relationship with Graham through her more recent BDSM encounters into sharp relief. They were healthy, consensual, and somehow they were still unsatisfying. Despite herself, she still craved more extreme punishment than these men could deliver. But it was really more than that. To Elaine, it seemed that no one on earth understood her. It was like she was back to square one, lonelier than ever and desperate for relief. On March 25th, 2011, just when she was at her most desperate, her phone buzzed. A long text from an unknown number began. Hi, Elaine. Hope you are keeping well. A wave of fear coursed through her body. She didn't recognize the number, but there was something about the text that seemed familiar. She quickly wrote back, asking who it was. Somehow, she already knew. It had to be Graham Dwyer. Elaine proceeded with caution. She remembered the pain, both physical and emotional, that had defined their relationship. She'd been through so much. He'd put her through so much. Still, they exchanged a handful of texts, easily sliding back into their old cat-and-mouse game. It reminded Elaine of the better times of their relationship, near the beginning, when they had both been filled with the excitement of discovery. Finally, she admitted that she still thought about him. She'd even thought of reaching out to him before remembering the way he'd treated her. To Graham, Elaine's attempts at erecting boundaries only added to the fun. She was being demure, but that didn't discourage him. Patience was one of his many weapons. He replied with faux earnestness, saying he just wanted to check in to make sure she was still alive, a jab at her struggle with mental illness. When she confirmed she was alive and kicking, Graham decided he could drop the act and asked her if they could start over. Elaine agreed to meet the next day, but didn't commit to resuming their relationship. She let him know right off the bat that she still wasn't interested in knife play. Just the thought sent shivers down her spine. As a tactic to get Elaine to lower her guard, Graham reassured her that he wasn't interested in anything that might make her feel uncomfortable. He told her he'd been watching her house and asked if she was still smoking. He hated cigarettes, and she knew it. Reluctantly, Elaine confirmed it. That was perfect for Graham, a handy excuse to set up a punishment right from the start. There's no way to tell how Elaine felt at that moment. It might have seemed harmless to open up a line of communication with her former partner. Maybe she felt that both she and Graham had changed, that they might be able to establish a clear boundary and stick to it. This time, maybe things would be different. But Graham had other plans. Unbeknownst to Elaine, he had, in fact, changed since they'd last spoken. It wasn't enough to stab someone anymore. 
Graham wanted to take his obsession as far as it could go. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with part two of Graham Dwyer and Elaine O'Hara as their relationship reaches its tragic conclusion. For more information on Graham Dwyer and Elaine O'Hara amongst the many sources we used, we found Almost the Perfect Murder by Paul Williams extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Eric Stankey, edited by Georgia Hampton and Tara Wells, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Kitovich. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.